0: The show you need to get what you desire by avoiding the mistakes made by others before you. Learn the stories and journeys of what success looks like to find the freedom you deserve while thriving with your best life. And now I present to you the one, the only Rapid Results with Andrew Wise. Welcome back to another episode of Rapid Results with Andrew Weiss. We have a very special guest, Kanika here today. Kanika Chattagupta is a CNN analyst. She also has a podcast around parenting, and I'm going to pull up her bio here in just a second. I actually closed out of it. But while I'm pulling that up, Kanika, tell us what is the biggest, most badass professional accomplishment you are most proud of?
1: Oh, goodness. I feel like it hasn't happened yet. Um, but definitely, you know, working as a television journalist for CNN was on my bucket list and basically I was hired as a producer and within six months began anchoring the show that I produced. It's called E Tonight and no one had achieved that in the history of the, of the network. And so I think when you really have your head in the right place and you're doing the work, uh, you can achieve these um, milestones in record time.
0: And when you say no one had achieved that before, what, what are you specifically referencing?
1: For a producer to become an anchor of a show within six months, like that that usually doesn't happen. It, it, you know, usually the producer is in that role for a few years. And then, um, you know, you have to kind of audition to be considered to be an anchor of a show. And, uh, and so I did that, but I just, I did it in like a, a shorter time frame because I knew that's what I wanted as soon as I was
2: hired.
0: So you, you did something in six months, but most people take several years to be able to do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. All right. <laughs> well, now that I have your bio pulled up, I'll officially read it off so that people are like, oh, my gosh, who is this kind of person? As she mentioned, she's a CNN television journalist turned podcaster, mother of three and including twins. She aims to give credit where it's often overlooked, the lasting impact of good parenting through her podcast. That's total mom sense of plan words there and spinoff series. What matters most with Maple and co-host Michael Perry. She interviews public figures and industry leaders on not only their career success, but the life lessons they've learned along the way, non-negotiables in their busy lives, and the legacy they aspire to leave for their children who go on to make the change makers of tomorrow. That's Total Mom Sense podcast garnered over one million digital streams last year. And Kanika has been featured in Forbes, ABC, NBC, Fox, and Thrive Global. And if you want to check out our website, it's that's total So Let's talk a little bit of more um, that you were like, here you are at, at the peak of your career. You went from producer to, to anchor. Tell us about that story. How do you even get that drive, that that passion, that ambition to be able to accomplish things so quickly? Lo- love to hear about that.
1: Sure. So, you know, I, I always like to start from the beginning and, and kind of set the stage. Uh, my parents and I immigrated from India to the U.S. when I was two years old. And I think, you know, just having immigrant parents is a very unique experience because of the sense of uh, work ethic they, that they you know instilled in me. And um, I remember growing up, the one thing that was just mainstay in our household was having the television on and it would either be news or talk shows. And it was just around the clock. I, I grew up watching Peter Jennings, Connie Chung, Barbara Walters, uh, Diane Sawyer, and loved uh, you know, how they would put news packages together and put together really compelling news reports. And one other thing that I want to share is, you know, every weekday at four, uh, my family and I had a ritual, and it was probably the women in my family. So my mom, my sister... Uh, my aunt and my grandmother, when she was visiting, and I would gather together on my mom's small sofa in her bedroom to watch Oprah.
2: <laughs> and
1: it was it was wonderful. I would like you know run home from school, finish my homework as fast as I could, so that I could watch Oprah with my family. And the one thing that I really loved about her was how she could use kind of uh, the interview format. Or storytelling.
2: Hmm. And
1: it didn't matter if she had a movie star or an ex-con or anyone on the other side. Um, she'd be able to allow them to be put at ease as they will, were vulnerable enough to share their story. And I think that that's a very unique skill. And in any form of media, it's something that really is powerful. And I realized I had a very similar skill growing up, and I knew I wanted to go into journalism. And so when I went to Boston University, I did international relations. And then I graduated from University of Miami, where I earned my master's in broadcast journalism. I love doing these long form interviews and human interest features. And my mentor, he was the one who encouraged me to uh, apply to CNN, and I was stationed in India. And he said, this is such a golden opportunity because you're in an international burgeoning market. You're going to have a completely different experience. And at the time, the CNN station there was just four years old. This was in Mumbai, uh, in Bombay, as I call it. And I was given a lot of responsibility right off the bat. And so even though I was hired as an executive producer and was hired to oversee this show... It was E tonight, like an entertainment tonight. Where we but you got
0: hired as an executive e- producer right out of college?
1: Yes, yes, that, yeah. That's a big no, deal, I, right? <laughs> that, yeah, that was great. That was great, and it's and it's something that you know. Again, I think having the masters, having my solid reel that I put together, mm. um, they knew that I was you know definitely qualified for the job, and and then I worked a ton of late nights, and I took on the role of being a correspondent alongside my role as producer, and and just put in that extra time. And, you know, it was really a self starter and proactive in the stories that I wanted to cover, in addition to what I was hired for. And that's what kind of allowed me to audition for the anchor position that was available. Um, This was something you had to audition for only because there was a lot of different candidates vying for the position, um, even from other departments, whether they were covering financial news or, you know, the crime beat or whatever. So a lot of people kind of vying for it. And it was given to me. And so I think all and of that...
0: were executive producing different. A, a different show than the one you got anchoring, right?
1: No, it was the same. Eat Tonight. So,
0: so couldn't you just cast yourself as the executive producer? It can't, isn't that how that works sometimes?
1: uh, No, 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 no. The anchor doesn't get to decide that. The news director decides that. Um, If Uh, you've watched any morning shows, the morning show is great.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) Um, Or yeah, any any shows around how a newsroom operates. The newsroom is another one. These series actually do a really great job in accurately portraying all the moving parts. But there's a news director and then there's a series of executive producers on the various shows, correspondents. Anchors for the shows, and then behind the the line positions, if you will, are the um, editors, the uh, sound engineers, uh, those who are in the control room actually airing the show, um, the videographers, and all the assistants that that go into that. So you have to run a tight ship, and you know the the worst nightmare for a newsroom is to go dark and go black on screen. Oh. So, however. <laughs> You can get things being done on time and, and hitting those deadlines so that they get to the control room and the playout is the time that they need it. And the commercials air at the time that they need it. Everything is mapped out on a rundown to the second.
0: Yeah, how, how often does that happen about a black screen just, just pops up? like I, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I've yeah. never seen it in my career, so... Um, but it's something that you're always nervous about. Interesting. <laughs> Everyone's just like, you know, and we're rolling. And then the next clip and then tosses the anchor and then toss mm-hmm. back to the studio. And yeah, it's, it's a frenzy.
0: Wow. So it sounds like the master's degree helped. Um, sounds like you had a great mentor who encouraged you to, to apply to CNN in the first place. sounds like you, you always, you're a go-getter. And then you also went above and beyond in your role as executive producer. Like you didn't just do the, Minimum checkoff. You're like, no, I'm going to get involved. In this get involved in this. How about? Is there anything you think you did to help stand out in the interview process to be selected as the anchor? Because I know I'm sure a lot of people they want to be anchors. They want to be those hosts. They want to follow in Oprah's footsteps. Like, tell us those skill sets. How to actually be selected for those kind of roles?
1: Yeah, sure. So I want to just share one interview that kind of comes to mind and really sticks out in my memory um, because it was one that I pitched to do in a completely different way. Um, and you really have to use your out of the box thinking, uh, especially when it's celebrity interviews, because everyone's asking the same questions, and they become trite after a certain point. But this was around um, when Slumdog Millionaire had won the Oscars. And this was just the biggest win for the country. I feel like it allowed Indians on a global scale to celebrate in what India is all about. And Danny Boyle did a magnificent job in directing the film. And so everyone was kind of... um, There was a hoopla created around the BAFTA win and the Academy Award win. And um, Dave Patel and Frida Pinto, who were the stars in the film. And I pitched a completely different story for our network. So I said, I want to interview... The young child actress, Rubina Ali, who was cast as the lead, um, the lead character's name was Latika, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And she was cast by Danny Boyle and his team from the slums. So they wow. did a huge casting call where it was thousands of kids uh, auditioning to be in the film wow. and, and Rubina won. And so... She is what Slumdog Millionaire is truly about. It it was her life story. Wow. And so we did a day in the life. And I did this expose where she took me through the slums where she lived. And it's uh, the slum is called Derevi. It is the largest slum in the world. There's one million residents there.
0: Would you feel in danger uh, going there?
1: No. You know what? I I didn't. I feel like it it was just... really sprawling community. And um, and everybody was like welcoming. Um, they, they loved seeing the, the videographers and the television cameras sorry,
2: mm. <laughs>
1: waving and um, wanted to be on screen. Okay. So yeah, we were received, you know, had a really warm welcome, I would say. But she took me through just the winding streets and shanties. And she showed me the cold floor that she slept on. And she showed me even this big cauldron that they used. That they would all pull together resources and make uh, lentils and rice, and and how they they managed to, like, you know, scrape by and feed one another. And to think that this young girl at eight years old went on to get on an airplane for the first time. That's like number one, that's unheard of. Yeah. And then walk the red carpet at Kodak Theater and have an Oscar in hand.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, it's just beyond one's wildest dreams when you come from abject poverty. And I mean, to have that story, like that's something that still, um, it warms my heart. And I feel like that's when I realized that what I like to cover as a journalist, and now as a podcaster, lies at the intersection of human interest stories, entertainment, because everyone's into that, and family life and family values. And so she was exactly that. And just as uh, where they are now, she's much older. And Danny Boyle had actually set up a college trust fund for her wow. um, and bought her family uh, flat. And so she was someone who was lucky enough to make it out of the slums and mm-hmm. have some life
0: So a million people in the slums. Yeah, you you'd think that crime rates would be skyrocketing through the roof every day. It's pretty cool. You literally got to be there um, yeah. literally, and experiencing it. And so, can you speak to what the assumptions are about most slums and your experience and the reality is it of them?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a very um dark underbelly to you know what goes on, and I can only speak for Mumbai um where I was born. But just the portrayal and how, how you see it play out in the film is pretty accurate. Um, there are dons and drug lords and you know those who are in the mafia who kind of control um, a lot of what's going on in the slums. There's a lot of human trafficking. And there's so many great stories coming out that are um, exposing who these people are um, mm-hmm. in investigative journalism. But yeah, what I saw, though, was a community of families and those who kind of became each other's families who wanted to help one another. You know, and I think that's something that's so beautiful about the country, despite the disparity, despite the fact that there is so much poverty, you know, more than half the country of a billion people live under a dollar a day. There's still so much joy and and happiness. Reminds me of another film Called City of Joy with Patrick Swayze. If you haven't seen that, it was from um, the '90s. But that's really what India is: is there's still so much warmth and happiness and togetherness, even in those circumstances where they don't have much else.
0: And that, that's interesting that you mentioned that you believe that that's why you got chosen as the go-to person for the story because you found the unique angle that. Other people weren't seen because everyone's like, oh, obviously the story is with Danny Boyle. and Obviously, he's the hero right. here. And right. you were able to go, no, no, the, the <laughs> literal girl who came from the slums to be in this movie. She's a hero, too. Kind of thing. Yes, um, exactly. And exactly. So did, did the Danny Boyle story ever get run or was it only yours?
1: No, no. I mean, every network was doing something different. Right. Mm. And so mm. if you looked at Reuters that owned a company called Times Now and BBC, like all the other networks are running Their version of what was important. And I think that's something to be aware of as a consumer that, you know, these, uh, news stations and networks, there is a level of agenda setting because this is all run by people and every organization has an idea of what they consider to be a top story. Mm -hmm. You know, breaking news is breaking news. A lot of times that's like across the board, especially if it's a crisis situation that they're reporting on. But outside of that, especially if it's an entertainment, the news organization gets to decide, is this our top story or is something else, you know, and and what is our angle and spin on it? And so we should be discerning as consumers, knowing that each channel is going to give us something different because... You know, the owner of the channel and then the news director and then the producers and then the anchors all agreed that no, this is the story we're going to come out with. Mm. Um, So everyone has their own take on things. And I'm glad that my network was um, appreciative of the angle I took.
0: Yeah. And and I didn't realize that or think about that. So there's like a CNN America, there's a CNN India, there's a CNN Africa. It, it, or or tell, is, that, is that how it's divided up? Is um, CNN by each continent?
1: Yes. Yeah. So there's CNN International. And then these kind of uh, satellite networks are in many different countries. And so, yeah, it's still part of corporate. But then they do have kind of the localized um, feel to it. And they're run by their own
0: owners. So do they ever like butt heads? Like, Does Europe and uh, Asia ever butt heads about anything or uh, compete in any way or any, anything like that?
1: You know, there's, that's something that I'm not privy to, but I feel like the decision makers on the back end, I'm sure, Mm. um, have to come to agreement, but they do, I I feel like each of these networks operate as independent. And, you know, in that way, they within themselves as an organization decide what they want to disseminate as news.
0: Yeah, makes sense. All right. So you're you're went from producer to anchor. And so tell us how you utilized your Oprah skills to be one of the top interviewers and anchors. Uh, tell, tell us more about the, art of the interview. the would love to hear more about that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there really is an art to the interview process because um, it's not something we're not really taught this in school. Um, and if you've gone to J school and have some sort of journalism background, you'll learn it. But now, uh, especially in podcasting, it seems like you know everyone wants to have a podcast or has launched one and they might not have been in media or groomed to have those interview skills. And so I'll give you a few of my tips and you know tenets of wisdom. Number one is to be prepared. I think it's so important to do your research and so, when you're, you know, interviewing a subject or speaking on a topic, make sure that you really dive in, and you're reading um, a lot of articles from credible publications, and not just Wikipedia your way through. The second is to listen. As we're interviewing, a lot of times we get in, inside our own head, and you know, and you're nervous, and you have an agenda, and you know that, like, you know, in these forty minutes, you got to ask these fifteen questions, and it's like. It's important to have your questions kind of ready to go, of course, but before just kind of rattling off each one, know that you have someone on the other end. And the only way to really provide for a compelling listening experience for the end user, the listener of your show, you have to listen to your guest and, and give them that time to speak. Number three is you can have some personal kind of signature element to how you interview you know i think that's really really fun edward murrow would always end with good night and good luck Mm -hmm. Um, and so whatever that is for you for me i have a segment called mom sense or nonsense you know where we kind of debunk norms or or do a little myth busting around the mom and parenting space and so just figure out what that segment is for you because that's fun and allows you to just hone in on your x-factor the next thing is to look the part. I think that's that's important. I know we're you know in an audio format, but make sure that you look professional, then you'll definitely exude that in your interview. And you should have a team in place. Um, know that as you're preparing for the actual dialogue, know that you have a team behind you, whether it's like, okay, we're helping with the show notes and we're copywriting or whatever. Um, Because if you have that and have a lot of eyes or hands on deck, it's just going to provide for a more compelling experience in the end. And then just as like tips on do's and don'ts for interviewing, um, I would say know that what your objective is for the interview. And do you know who the most important person is in an interview? Can you guess?
0: The guest.
1: You know what? It's actually the audience.
0: Ah yes. Listen. Of course. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Good question. Yeah. And that's what's so important to keep top of mind. Mm. Because the guest is of course going to share their insights and want to share their story. And and that's why you have them on. There's no denying that. But how can you, as really the captain of the ship who's steering the interview along, make it relevant for the audience? So that's where the preparation comes in also. But you know know enough about your guests that like okay they've been through a such and such circumstance or situation and i want to hear how they got out of it or how they became the success story or in my case in, in my podcast the life lessons that they learned that they want to pass on to their kids because though it's a parenting show it's not we're not talking you know potty training and toddler tantrums it's more the broad strokes and it's like you know if you reached a level of success in your life how are you going to equip your five-year-old and your 10-year-old and now your 15-year-old to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's something that all parents are going to have to, you know, want to pass on to your kids is, is some level of confidence, scrappiness, chutzpah. So that's something that I'm always trying to make sure I get out of my guests so that they pass that on to the audience.
0: What was the last thing was, you said after scrappiness? Had, what's that? You said, you said confidence, scrappiness, and, and what else?
1: Scrappiness, chutzpah. Which is just like your, uh, it's a, it's actually a Hebrew word, but I feel like it encapsulates, you know, your um, zeal. And again, it's tenacity and why you feel so compelled to do something and why you have the, the gusto and the fervor to do it. Um, it's
2: called chutzpah, huh
1: chutzpah, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. C-H-U-T-Z-P-A-H. Um, okay. I love that word. A word, and I think it's so relevant. If you're passionate about what you do, like what's the what's the behind it for you? Mm-hmm. Another thing is avoid cliches. Uh, a lot of times, interviewers will ask, like, "So, tell me about yourself," or "Tell me about your background." Um, and there's there's just no way, <laughs> like you're you're setting up that answer to be powerful enough, you know, because the, the person can go on and on. So it's up to you as an interviewer to not give them such an open ended question. You never want to ask two questions in a row. That gets Mm -hmm. confusing for the, for the guest. And a trick would be if you want to ask a tough question where, you know, it could get a little sticky, you can start with, so, uh, naysayers may say that because you feel XYZ, this is how, you know, this is how it affects them. And so it's not putting you in the opposing party's uh, view, Mm. but you're you're still able to like play devil's advocate and say like, oh, well. Oh,
0: I I like that. It's like, oh, there's been rumors of you thinking this way versus saying, oh, people are thinking this way. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Mm. Yeah, so you can kind of get it out of them. That way but i think the most important lesson i would like to impart is that you have to make sure that you put your guest at ease um you know they are giving you their time and their insights and sharing their story and that's you know a really nerve-wracking thing to do for many you know and so if they're giving you that then you should be just as gracious as a host and speak to them in a conversational way as you would a dear friend or a family member. And when you bring that heart into your interviews, it, it, it's really palpable for everyone. It changes the tone completely.
0: No, it makes sense. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so speaking of uh, tough questions, tell us uh, some of the toughest interviews you've had, whether like the tension was high, whether it was an angry guest or uh, I'm, I'm curious some of your experiences in, in those in those shoes.
1: Oh wow. You know, I I don't have any that come to mind that were like, you know, charged in any way, but there are many that have sad stories to share,
2: you know, and mm. I think
1: that's what's also really delicate in how you handle it. I remember in my television days, I interviewed a survivor of the twenty six eleven terror attacks that happened in Mumbai. And that was it was still very fresh. And I think it was hard for anyone to speak out about, because what had happened was, um, this was back in 2011, you know, 10 terrorists had taken the entire city by siege. And they were in the top hotels and in restaurants and cafes. And there were just these shootouts and bloodbaths, and they were holding many, you know, residents um, hostage. So it it was a really tenuous situation until the last terrorist was captured and all the others were killed. And so the survivors who went through that had their own kind of PTSD around it. And so I was very mindful of, of their feelings. Um, and then another more recent situation is, you know, what well, was
0: and going back to that situation really yeah. quick. Mm-hmm. So how does, how does that sequence work? Like, how do you even convince someone to even come on and share their experience? Like, I feel like a lot of people will be like, no, like what, I'm not going to talk about like it's a, a traumatizing more if I talk about mm-hmm. it again. I'm curious about what that looks like to be able to make that happen.
1: Yeah, I think um, there's something so it's almost compelling in the person to share because, you know, the community and um, society at large needs to know. Mm -hmm. And if it's something of terror, a horrifying experience, or if they've gone through some sort of crisis, it just allows it to hit home. Especially for those who may oppose how things played out, or or you know what kind of motivations were, um, and something parallel to compare that to is gun violence in this country and the you know mass shootings that we've encountered, especially in the past few years, and most recently the school shooting um, in Uvalde, Texas, at Robb Elementary. I mean, these are so many parents as they were grieving. You wouldn't think like they would be. Be able to even muster up the courage or have the voice, you know. Like I I can't, as a mom myself, I can't even imagine. I get choked up just thinking about it. So if someone were to, you know, stick a camera in my face and ask me um, what it feels like to lose a child, like I don't know how I would have the the words or the even just the sound of my voice come out. But the reason why so many of the parents have spoken out, um, many in court proceedings. Is because it's driving change. You know, we still need gun reform in this country and, and bipartisan gun laws that both parties can agree on where we find a middle ground. And, and that's why the parents are speaking out because they know that if they, if they kept it in and felt like, okay, we're not going to, um, allow ourselves to, to interact with the media, then opposing sides would never know. They would never know what it feels like.
0: Hmm. Uh, so, so in the in the Mumbai terrorist instance, yeah, it's bringing on the experience to help drive change for more security measures in the country. Or talking about like, why can't we have more love? Or I uh, obviously, didn't see that that interview. But yeah, what what are those those talking points? What, what do those look like?
1: Yeah. Um. I think it's you know making sure that the yeah the security measures are in place, and we you know we're aware of how easily terrorists can infiltrate into this country. And so then it's really like a plea to the lawmakers and the officials and politicians in the country as to how they're going to handle it. Because now they're hearing from their civilians as to, you know, how they were you know tortured or one of the uh, survivors I interviewed, he, he helped about 500 people get to safety because they wow. were hiding in one portion of the Thodge hotel. And so, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's things like that, that the reason why they're speaking out is so that the politicians and heads of government can do something about it and make sure that an instance like that doesn't happen again.
0: Gotcha. And, and so going back, oh yes, yeah, so I think you're about to dive into How do you handle being the interviewer in that situation to talk about the delicate topic? Um, yeah. Feel free to dive in on, on that. How do you handle that?
1: Yeah. I, I think it's important to understand how difficult it is for the other person and you really put yourself in their, in their shoes and, um, and make sure that you kind of put them to ease. And I, I back to my core value of just listen, you know, if you give them that space, uh, to just be open and speak, um, they'll share what they feel they want to. And so, um, as you ask your questions, you can be thoughtful about that. Like, you know, can you recount what happened that night and let them talk mm-hmm. about it? And you know, what were you feeling in that moment? And what do you, by you sharing your story, what do you hope to change in society? What's driving you to share your story? Um, And so that I think those talking points will help them how they want to answer and, and how uh, vulnerable they want to get in, and how they answer.
0: I think and that reminds me too. Uh, I think, you know, so my, my fiance, Celisha, she, she also loves Oprah and, and wants to be like Oprah too. And I think she mentioned like one of the things that Oprah is known for is that whenever her guest was crying, Oprah was also able to cry on demand yes. with the guest and, and relate to her. Were you able to to do that as well? Like you'll cry on demand with your guests and laugh with your guests, like ma- match their emotions curious your experiences with that.
1: Yes, absolutely. I, I'm an empath. And I've always been that way. So if someone's telling me a sad story, I'm falling, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. it's just, um, and it's something that I don't hide on screen. And I think it's important to be able to be there for someone in that way, where, you know, as a friend, if you were telling a story like that to a friend um, of loss or, or something that you went through that was a difficult point in your life you would seek that empathy and compassion and so to have that as a journalist and an interviewer i think is uh certainly like a a skill that sets you out from the rest hopefully you're not you know monotone and stoic on the other end and i'm not even doing it because it you know makes for a good interview that that's completely inauthentic i have always been that way Regardless, you know, if, if you're telling me something sad or touching, I um, automatically, you know, have my emotions kind of well up and I feel what the person is feeling.
0: Oh, makes makes sense. Um, I wonder, I mean, obviously there's more emotional men than women and more emotional women than men, but I feel like it is a primarily female thing to be able to empathically relate more often or, or, or your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Um, I guess you know at the biological level, it you know comes down to you know our hormones and and why we are you know more nurturing. The fact that women are the ones who um, are childbearers, I think that's you know definitely no coincidence as to why we have more of a connection with other people and and children. And so, yeah, that that tie to humanity and what makes us human is um is something that's so you know kind of inherent in women
0: no it makes sense and then i think you said there's going to be another interview you mentioned was extra tough or, or tricky to navigate here but you about to talk about before i cut you off about the mumbai one
1: um no there was i mean i like i am doing a series on gun control
2: mm.
0: and
1: so i know that's going to be heated and i feel like um what i like to do also is be as objective as possible uh, I, I don't play into agenda sending through my podcast or through my shows because I want the audience to feel like this is uh, an objective and, you know, not right or left leaning type of interview. Um, and so there are times where, you know, you, you have to consider having someone who has opposing views than you on and hear what they have to say. It only makes you that much more aware you know, it only, it changes your perspective. And so that's something that I am going to do is, um, you know, hear from uh, lawmakers who are pushing for gun reform and then those who are against it and why.
0: Yeah. How, how do you go about, of course, and I know obviously we all have innate natural human biases, but the more we're aware of them, the more we can help prevent them. But I, I agree that, you know, I, I think one of the biggest issues nowadays is that people think everything has to be black or white, has to be red or blue, has to be pro-life or pro-choice, and that yeah. they don't allow that that middle ground area. So the first question is, yeah, how do you make sure to remain objective and do your best to do that?
1: Yes, I think, you know, I was groomed to be this way as a journalist. and I learned a lot from, you know, when I was in grad school, my professor, Sam Roberts, he... Was an executive with CBS for thirty years, and he worked as the executive producer for Walter, Walter Cronkite's shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, very, very respected in the industry. And and so, he's definitely someone I learned that from. And I feel like we we have our own um, opinions, and we have our own uh, views, and you know what side of the spectrum we fall in. Like that's absolutely fine. But if you are a journalist and you're an intermediary or your sole purpose is to disseminate the news or a story to the public, you can't infuse your opinions into that. It's just, it's ethically wrong, uh, in my opinion. I think, you know, it's, it goes both ways. Like maybe, you know, for those, they feel more comfortable doing so because. It's how they genuinely feel and that's that's great. But I think because I come from a news background, I knew that that's something that is not done with the news. you know. And so I, I basically followed that tenet for my podcast. Um, and I want to make sure that the audience, I keep the audience top of mind. They're forming their own opinion because we're hearing from both sides now. I'm the intermediary my views don't come into it unless I share, like, I can say, you know, Oh, me too. Or this has happened to me as well or whatever. Um, so you don't have to be completely removed from the situation. Uh, but you're presenting the facts and it's like, there's this side, there's that side. This is how it went down. Now, listener, you can put together the pieces and decide how you feel on it. Cause you heard both sides.
0: Yeah. And, uh, I know that's what the news and media gets a lot of trouble for nowadays. Is like, what happened to objective news? What happened to unbiased news? And you know, I, I think of that. <laughs> so I, I think this is a good topic. So I'm, I'm going to dive into it. Uh, into it. Uh, g- going back to like the Trump versus Biden debates, the first one with Chris Wallace, like everyone felt like Chris Wallace felt like he needed to be part of the debate. And the meme was like the, the Mexican standoff of them all pointing at each other <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, get kind of thing. And, and so, like, so why do you think, you know, and obviously I advocate for objective unbiased as much as they can control Sounds like you do too. But I think we both know yeah. news sources still have their own biases. Why does that still happen? Do you think that like people know they're supposed to be ethical and unbiased objective and yet we still see this drastic biasness that's directly happening essentially?
1: Yeah, I think you learned following directions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's something so simple. We learned it in kindergarten. It's like Mm -hmm. what my kids are learning now. But yeah, I think if you're, you know, part of the newsmaking process, it's just it's our job to give the public the facts as accurately as possible. You know, and and when you put your own spin on it, it's like the game of telephone. You know, it it shouldn't be like this was the phrase that was said, and by the end of it, it. was contorted into something completely different.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I, I think it's it's important to be, you know, authentic and, and you know, uh, like, just kind of holding steadfast to why we're sharing a story in the first place. So yeah, I, I, I think it's, it, I don't agree with how that's happened on both sides, even though I have my opinions, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. and I know where I fall. But I, I I think it shouldn't be like too leftist or too rightist. It's just it, it's just not ethical when it comes to being a newsmaker.
0: Mm, that's a, that's interesting. Uh, it, you, you say it's a matter of not following directions. Um,
2: yeah.
0: How much is money a, a part of that though? Because I think that's exactly exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah. reveals,
1: and again, it's like these um, our private organizations; they're owned by uh, certain individuals or you know boards and committees and things like that and so they all have you know their own agenda you know mm-hmm. and so that's why they're trying to appeal to the masses with their agenda in mind and yeah i just say i think that that's uh it's unfortunate that it comes down to that money is a you know, huge it's why it's, it goes either way
0: yeah no, that makes sense oh yeah how do you find the maturity to be able to post an interview with someone who, you know, has an opposing view with you? And I think that's another thing Oprah was famous for, is that she was able to interview members of the KKK and say, right. I'm a black woman. Like, how the heck did you come to this? But she was able to keep her cool and say, OK, thanks for sharing your side of the story. Now, here's my side of the story. But I think right. a lot of people aren't able to have that cool where you know they get triggered by, by people, by phrases, by words very easily. And so I'm curious how you can encourage people to develop that skill or encourage others to have that skill and your overall thoughts on that.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, it's so important to kind of keep your composure and know that, again, you're just a conduit. You know, you're sharing one side or, or one party's views and then another. And so once you get really good at listening, I think these kind of things don't affect you. And I think it's important to you know, even if you are like enraged by a comment or disagree, there's a way to diplomatically do that so that, you know, your credibility isn't at stake. You know, you don't want to make a fool out of yourself, you know? So I think there's uh, something to be said about having that dignity when you are doing an interview.
0: Yeah. How do you diplomatically disagree with someone to prevent losing credibility?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it just it depends. It's like on a case by case basis. I, I feel like I, I have honed in on on how to be mindful and you know, like I said earlier, as a tip, like if you if you wanted to say what you're feeling and you're on the opposing view, you could just instead say, so those in the opposition may think X Y Z or naysayers may say XC, even though you're in that camp. and
2: they Yeah. Say, you know? mm-hmm. yeah.
1: <laughs> so you're, you're just kind of keeping it objective in that way. And it's, it's important to know that like, it's okay to get emotional in an interview when it's again, something that like others can empathize with, you know? And so if you're crying during an interview or, you know, you're getting choked up or I think that's something that we all as humanity, it resonates with us, but if you're getting fired up and you know, you can't hold your, like keep your composure and, you know, are like off the rails, like that, that's something that is jarring for for the audience, you know? And it's, so yeah, you have to, I don't know, as soon as it's like, when a mic is in front of your face or the camera's in your face, like you have to be on in
2: a different way.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. I'm curious too. Is there a debate that you would want to moderate, or would you hypothetically be open to moderating a presidential debate? I'm, I'm curious your uh, your thoughts on that.
1: Um, I, I'm I'm really excited to do the one on gun reform that I'm doing. Um, I'm still working at the details for that, but you know, I think it's it's important to hear from parents who have lost um, their kids and they're they're grieving. Um, the death of their children in a mass shooting. And then it's important to hear from like NRA decision makers. You know, I want to hear from both sides. So that's one topic that's very pertinent to my community, because we just want to keep our kids safe. Mm -hmm. And we understand that there are certain laws in place by the Constitution. But at the end of the day, we want to be alive. So there's that, you know, and how, however, we can best appeal to everyone because we're all affected by this. So that's something that's very just interesting to me. But outside of that, I, I, politics isn't my beat. I, I mm. like keeping it lighter. I like covering entertainment. Um, and that's the lane I've always been in. So yeah, it's the lifestyle, entertainment, and now parenting. Like I like to be in that.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and so speaking of uh, parenting too, I do I do want to kind of transition. Like, how did you get into your uh, mompreneur? Uh, no, Mom Sense podcast, and is, it, is that a full time income or full time yes. job as well? Yes. Uh, yeah,
1: it's become so, full time, which is yeah. so exciting, and I, I absolutely love the freedom and the autonomy that comes with that. Like, well, I started that sort of Mom Sense out of a problem that I was facing. So, I had three kids in a year and a half.
2: Wow. <laughs> I,
1: say, I had twins. And then when they were just nine months old, I got pregnant with my third. And I knew I wanted a family, uh, a big family, but I didn't know that I was going to go from just me and my husband household of two to five in a year. Yeah. You know, like, that was just, like, wow. So I um, I began listening to podcasts. And I felt like the mom space was really ridden with um, a lot of complaining and a lot of commiserating. It was just, you know, mom saying like, oh my God, breastfeeding. Oh my God, potty training. And there's no doubt those phases of life. I, I went through it with, I had three in diapers for a year. So yeah. I, mean, I you know, remember how hard those early years were, but I felt like if I'm dedicating, you know, 30 minutes to an hour of my time to hear two people have a dialogue, like help me out here, you know, give me some tangible takeaways Make me feel like I've learned something. Make me feel like you know I'm becoming a better person and a better parent for tuning in. Like that's the whole goal. So with Mom Sense, um, the pillars are to be informative, insightful, inclusive, and inspiring. Mm-hmm. And and the um, the first two, coming from my journalism background, I'm already hardwired to make sure that anything that I have on my show as a topic or an episode is going to give you the insights and be something that's relevant to the here and now. And in order to be inclusive, I have a diverse, you know, like a range of audience that I have, diverse uh, guests that I bring on with a range of perspectives. And I even launched a spin-off called What Matters Most, where I have a co-host, Michael Perry. He's a tech founder. He founded the app Maple, which is essentially a product management or a household management app for parents. It's really brilliant. And so Michael is a devoted father to his two sons, and he's in tech, and um, and he's an excellent speaker. And so I had him join me as a co-host because I knew that even though I have mom in my brand, I'm appealing to parents, mm-hmm. and I want dads to pull a seat up, uh, pull a seat up at the table, and hear from them what are yeah. their problems. They don't have as robust as a community as moms do, you know, and and. We have to hear what their opinions are, what their struggles are, and find ways to help them. Um, our first episode was on Michael's um, journey through infertility and how they had their kids, and it was just very eye-opening. And we got so many DMs from dads saying thank you for sharing the story because I felt so isolated when I went through my own experience. So yeah. I love that we resonated in that way. And then lastly, inspiring something that you know gives the audience members, something to hang on to. They're like, thank you for giving me these tips because now I'm gonna use these life lessons as I go about my life and how I parent my kids. Um, And I bring on celebrities by design because we don't hear enough about their parenting life. Mm -hmm. I've had Kelly Rowland on the show. She's from Destiny's Child and she's amazing singer, songwriter and author and actor. America Ferreira. Bobby Brown, Rebecca Minkoff, Daphne Oz, Malika Chopra, all all these personalities that we we know as public figures, but we don't hear enough about their motherhood or fatherhood experience. You know, and it's like, okay, tell us about that. Tell us, you know, what rocked you and what, like, had you kind of have a moment where it's like, okay, I, I have to unlearn things that happened in my own child life that I have to do for my kids. Like, There's so many layers to it. And because these individuals have seen success in their life, I'm uniquely curious and interested in what they have to say because surely they're going to pass that on to their kids. And it's something that we can learn to implement in our own families and our homes.
0: I love that. And, uh... And I like, like how it's all kind of like full circle, like where you said, make it about the audience, make it about the audience. And obviously yeah. by doing that, that's allowed you to get over a million digital downloads, which is amazing. And just remind too, the audience um, downloads are different than streams and plays, right?
1: Yeah. So, so mine was um, digital live streams. And so I actually streamed on a radio station called Ruckus Avenue Radio and Dash Radio owns that. And so that number is, you know, totaling all of that. But yeah, so I have my live stream radio show and then, and that's syndicating that that's what mom says show it airs every Thursday at four mm-hmm. and then the downloads as well. So yeah, it's been great to be able to kind of leverage where my audience lives. Some of them listen to live stream radio. Some of them are podcast listeners. And so you you want to diversify as you're putting your content out there so that you can, you know, increase your reach and
2: grow your audience.
0: Yeah. And, and tell us again, because I know that's the top mistake people make is that they think, oh, once I produce it, it's going to go viral. Everyone's going to listen to it. Um, <laughs> tell us the promotion process and the work that goes into spreading awareness and marketing it. And we're curious about that.
1: Yeah, it's true. I think um, it's a multi-pronged approach. And you know, once you put in that research and you secure that guest, and then you actually air that episode every week, then there's like a whole slew of other things you have to do um outside of that. Um, I'm lucky that I have a team. So I have a publicist, um, Icon PR, um, they help me with my bookings and um, my podcast appearances, which again help increase your credibility as a podcaster. Um, and then I have a manager, uh, Brenda Bott, who's with Artistry Collective, and my agent, Marla Hout, who's with Innovative. So they they're my sounding board um, and my director of marketing is Ethan Mulan. Who's also part of this uh, dream team that we have? so after an episode is released, then we think of ways to promote it and monetize it mm-hmm. and um, and that's I think where a lot of podcasters get tripped up. It's like, okay, well, now what? especially if you want to turn this into your full-time gig. And so for me, I think of um, really innovative ways of in doing so. so I'll start with the the easy stuff you you know when you're promoting your podcast, you can do audiograms and social media, do polls, ask your, um, not only are you posting about your guests because you really want to shine a light on them and then they all reshare to their audience. So that's a great way to grow on social and then driving the traffic back to the podcast, like have your one really dynamic website that houses everything. So it has to have all your podcast episodes. Sure. They can find you on Apple and Spotify But if it's on your website, you're driving all the traffic back, and they're going to be able to look around at all the other things you're doing. So there's that. But uh, in terms of monetizing, I've done you know your typical pre-roll and mid-roll ads for brands, but I always like to put my producer cap on and go one step further. And so a few brands that I can highlight are Homer. They are um, a children's learning app for ages two through eight. When At the height of the pandemic, when all the parents at home were tasked with handling remote learning, we were like, okay, you know, I have my full time job, but now I'm a teacher. So it was, it, it just totally, you know, threw us for a loop. I brought on the CEO of Homer, Stephanie Dua, on my show. We heard from her every day throughout the pandemic. It was like a three month retainer that I had worked out with them. And she spoke about, uh, how parents can teach their young children phonics and teach them reading at home. How they can build their mo- math confidence. How they can better understand their mental health and issues surrounding that. Um, how they can you know do sensory play activities and teach through play. So like all those things where she is a thought leader and expert. I have now given her a platform on my podcast because she doesn't need to go out and start her own podcast. She has a brand. She has a you know children's learning app that that's that's their main thing. So now I'm leveraging my audience of parents who need her advice. And so the brand is on board because they're given this platform with a captive audience. and and for me, I'm monetizing with that brand and partnering with that brand. and and at the end of it, It's not so much what the retainers are or how much money you're earning. I feel the only reason why I go into these partnerships is of service, to be Mm -hmm. of service to my audience. And I know that because we were scrambling, having to handle the remote learning, I knew we'd all benefit from hearing from an expert in childhood development um, and in that space.
0: And the app is called Homer, you said? Um, Yes. Okay.
1: It's it's like the... uh, renowned, it's, it's named after the renowned author of the Iliad and Odyssey. Oh, like,
0: not, not the Simpsons character. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh. <laughs> but,
1: um, but yeah, that, so you think outside the box like that and you monetize that way, because if you really know who your audience is, um, then you can cater to their needs and, and know that like, okay, they're wearing this brand. They're watching these shows on Netflix. They probably drive this car. They listen at one or two x speed because they don't have time. Like if you know them, that you can pinpoint it to like that degree, then really hone in on. Okay, this is a brand that gets it. They either are aware of it and are like already buying the products, or this is a brand that I know that once they hear about it, they'll definitely be on board. And it's like you know, if they're like into clean eating or um, all things organic or whatever it may be. And you find a brand that fits all those, like checks all those boxes, introduce that to your audience because they're going to eat it up.
0: No, I, I love that. Well, Kanika, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all this knowledge. Uh, last couple questions are, if people were to listen to this uh, whole interview, what is, like, what's the one takeaway you want them to have from this experience?
1: Oh, absolutely. I would say uh, it's something that I always ask my guests. Um, I feel like we have a built-in sixth sense. And as it applies to parents, I call it our mom sense or our dad sense. And I think it's so important to trust your sixth sense. So, you know, I, I like to ask this question. is like, you know, tell me a moment where you trusted that sense of yours in driving a decision you made that affected the rest of your life and know that when you have that conviction in whatever it is you're doing, especially when it comes to media, um, you will succeed.
0: I love that. And what's the best way that people can get a hold of you if they want to learn more, if they want to connect with you, if they want to subscribe to you? Uh, how can people connect with you?
1: Absolutely. So I would say you could start at my website and that uh, URL is thatstotalmomsense.com. Uh, you can email me and my team at thatstotalmomsense at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Instagram. I have a handle for the podcast, thatstotalmomsense. And my personal handle, um, where I share a lot of my guests and just some personal kind of anecdotes too, uh, that's at Kanika Chadha
0: I love it. All right, everyone. This concludes another episode of Rapid Results with Andrew Weiss. Uh, thank you again for Kanika for coming on the show today. And we will see you all next week. Cheers, everyone.
1: Thank you, Andrew.
0: That concludes another episode of Rapid Results. Remember to leave a review about something you learned so others can share the knowledge. Keep being unstoppable in your pursuit of the lifestyle freedom you desire. And we'll see you next week.